Welcome, everyone, to the Deepwater Initiative's Religion and Ecology podcast. I'm your host, Charlie Forbes, and in this episode, I'm speaking with award-winning director and producer, Josh Bones Murphy, about a feature documentary he recently directed for Patagonia titled Artificial. Artificial is a film about wild rivers and wild fish that explores the high cost, ecological, financial, and cultural of our mistaken belief that engineered solutions can make up for habitat destruction. The film traces the impact of fish hatcheries and the extraordinary amount of public money wasted on an industry that hinders wild fish recovery, pollutes our rivers, and contributes to the problem it claims to solve. On the back of a successful screening of Artificial last month at the California Institute of Integral Studies, the Deepwater Initiative team wanted to hear a little bit more from Josh and spread the word about a powerful film that has much to say about our relationship to wildness. Crossing the river, John. Hey, Josh, for those who are uh, just tuning in or who aren't familiar with your work or who haven't seen Artificial, would you mind briefly introducing yourself and and speak a little bit to how you got involved with this film, Artificial? Yeah, uh, so the film is really kind of at its its kind of obvious levels about the unwilding of salmon and how we've kind of imparted this industrialized process into something that used to be done by nature. And through that, we've kind of uh, forgotten what the value of wild is. And I think it's really important for viewers of this film to consider not just for salmon, which is an icon of wild, but for all the wild things in the world. And we're, we, we've, the, the United Nations just said that we're uh, in, in you know, the sixth largest extinction and we're faced with possibly a million extinctions in the next few decades. And that has huge implications, not only for for humans, but for the Earth, uh, which will outlive humans <laughs> unless we do something uh, much worse. But at the end of the day, you know, we, we have to be caretakers of this place for ourselves and for the other beings on it. And for me, I got into this because, well, kind of a, a bit of chance, uh, but also uh, due to passion. I, I had gone to school uh, for fisheries biology as an undergraduate and a graduate. Uh, And when I was a kid, Jacques Cousteau was my idol. And I wanted to go into science because I thought everything water was the most amazing thing in the world. I grew up on the east end of Lake Erie and spent as much time in the waters through lakes and whitewater kayaking and anything I could do, surfing. Water was just my my medium. In the winter, it was frozen water with skiing and, and ice hockey and it just conveyed every part of my life, and I wanted to know more about it. And I thought, of course, that, that Cousteau was a scientist. And I realized later, really, his legacy is as a filmmaker, but I didn't kind of think about it that at first. So I went into science. And before I went to get my graduate degree, I worked on a land-based fish farm in Ireland. And I actually managed the on-campus teaching fish hatchery at Humboldt State University to pay for my graduate school. So I kind of was immersed in this whole thing and then left fisheries after like a year 
and started making film. I'd been doing a lot of just filmmaking with the friends I was whitewater kayaking with uh, over the, for years, but just kind of little silly stuff. And then I was at the same time kind of a competitive and professional skier. And I kind of, I kind of giggle about that because what professional skiing at that time was, was they paid you a little to ski a lot. <laughs> and, uh, but I did. And we were living in the Lake Tahoe area and I, I worked for this group called the Tahoe Conservancy as a fisheries biologist. And, and it came to winter time and they said, well, you know, we don't have as much work, so we're going to scale back and two of you have to split one job and he's got seniority. So he got 60% time and I had 40% time. And I was like, well, what am I going to do now? I'm like flip burgers. I mean, <laughs> I wanted, I wanted to do something. And I was like, you know, I've always wanted to make a film. And specifically, uh, it was going to be a film about freeheel or telemark skiing, which I was competing in and, and uh, traveling for and, and kind of trying to push the limits up. And I figured, you know, nobody had really seen it the way that we were doing it. So why not make a film? So I, I bought a 16 millimeter camera on eBay and I was sure they were going to take my money because I didn't know what this place was. And I was like, oh, this is a big, big gamble. But uh and spent the year and put, uh, I think it was $13,000 on a credit card, which when you're early 20s, that was a big feat. <laughs> uh, it was pretty pretty scary, but made this film that was ultimately supported by K2 and a bunch of other brands that I was uh, skiing for at the time, like Boweri and Scott and uh, boot manufacturers named Garmont and and then Patagonia. Um, was you know one of the, the early backers and for six years all i did was make action sports films all of a sudden became a filmmaker and it kind of pushed me to want to learn more about this medium and then as i say that's when i kind of realized Cousteau was a filmmaker and i thought i should get back to telling some of those stories that i always wanted to tell about how humanity and the environment kind of are colliding at times and i did as much as i could to do that when i could and then fast forward you know, 17 years, 16 years later, um, doing a, a piece for 1% for the Planet, uh, which is the nonprofit that Yvonne Chouinard and his friend Craig Matthews set up, encouraging businesses to give 1% of their gross back to grassroots environmental organizations. And we are in the, uh, in the Madison Valley, um, or on the Madison River, I should say, in Montana, sitting on the back of a pickup truck, and somebody over lunch just asked Yvonne, you know, what's the next film Patagonia is working on? And he said, it's a film about the arrogance of man. And I thought, well, that's interesting. And then he said, it's the way we're unwilling salmon through fish hatcheries and fish farms. And we're taking this thing that was once wild and making it something that is no longer wild. And I remember thinking, I can't believe you just said that. And I, you know, said, hey, you know, I've done a whole bunch in this area. I was also the co-producer and second unit director of a film called The River Y, which is based on this classic novel about a coming-of-age story of a, a kid that grows up as a fly-fishing prodigy in Oregon, and a beautiful novel by David James Duncan. And I explained all the other environmental work that I'd done since then, and, and we just chatted over lunch. And at the end of the day, he asked me if I had a card, and I said I didn't, but I just scribbled a piece of scribbled my number on a piece of paper and he said, I'll call you. And I was quite sure that was never going to happen. And then two days later, his <laughs> producer did call and I was like, really? <laughs> he said, yeah, Yvonne wants to know if you want to direct this film. And I was like, well, hell yes, but what the hell is it? And he's like, well, that's for you to figure out. We've got a couple ideas. 
there was a, a fly fishing ambassador that uh, was a producer of the film that had kind of sketched out a couple ideas, but it, it didn't feel to me like a film at that point. It was more of just a couple of people and ideas. And so we launched into this, what became two and a half year process of making the film and it launched in April uh, in, I guess it was Iceland was the first place we played in Reykjavik and then Norway. And then it took off throughout Europe and I came back to the States and then we had our official premiere at the Tribeca film festival. And now it's been seen at over 500 film festivals or private screenings. And I think like 60,000 people have seen the film and it's not even available yet. <laughs> well, it's, uh, you know, just talking through your history here, it's, it's providing a little insight into how your role as a storyteller and how a filmmaker is fitting and, and interacting with this current ecological crisis that we're working through at the moment. What is the aim or what was the aim and, and mission of the project? And, and what were the central themes and ideas you wanted to bring across in the film? And, um, how much control did you have over, over the vision of for the message? And, and, and what did you want the audience to kind of meditate on? Well, it's an interesting question because when we started, it was very clear what we had hoped to do was make a provocative film that informed people about what, fish hatcheries and fish farms actually do because most of them most people would say well that's a good thing you know we're we're taking the pressure off of wild fish by eating farmed fish or by raising fish in in confinement and then releasing them that was kind of the basics that we wanted to cover but from the get-go i was like i want to tell a story that's much bigger than that because as yvonne had kind of launched this idea in me it was like how do we connect this issue to the idea of the arrogance of mankind and so i kept saying we have to tell one story that's really a lens through which we see a much greater story and so past that they get we had quite a bit of freedom in, in how to get there i mean we we definitely i think the film is 80 minutes and we shot 150 hours of, of footage and there's probably three or four short films uh, that could be made out of the segments that didn't make it into the film. But I think that's filmmaking too, is you're heading in one direction and you realize that even though this is a good piece, it doesn't fit uh, the broader goal that we're, we're attempting. And so I think really what, when, when we got right down to it, we realized the best way to tell the story was just to allow people to see the ridiculousness at play. I mean, when you see that we are uh, raising in captivity and releasing 5 billion, with a B, 5 billion salmon into the North Pacific every year, you kind of go, wait, what? And then you say, well, Alaska, which is known for its wild salmon, releases the most fish of any place in all of North America, 1.8 billion fish. You start to say, well, what is wild Alaskan salmon then? If in fact we're augmenting, we're trying to, to mitigate fish returns that we would like more from. And so as we began to kind of unravel this, we just saw all of the propaganda at play with state and federal agencies telling you that they were doing right by you know, using this domesticated agrarian fix to a wild problem. And it became very clear that the story we needed to tell was that this is really about healthy rivers and healthy water because if if rivers that historically held 
salmon and trout populations cannot, and we have to keep stocking them with fish, then we've got a real problem either with water quality or with, with greed because humans just keep yanking them out and we just keep raising them and putting them back in at the taxpayer's dollar. And I think that's kind of when it's seen for what it is, most people go, what the hell is going on here? And we, we realize it's really the, you know, the folly of mankind too, the hubris, that we would say that that's okay. There's not one other animal that I know of in the world that we raise and release by state and federal government agencies and put back into the wild for people to catch. It's, it's purely ridiculous. Well, and, and that's a huge point right there. I think if I can, I can pick up on, on this point here and, and play off that, I'm, and you're talking about the hubris and the arrogance of, of humankind and this lens through which we have a greater story. I think for me and for some of the impressions that I've gotten from, from people who have seen the film, it really, one of the central things is it brings up an inherent conflict between the Western notion of our, our right, or at least we think it's our right to dominate nature Mm-hmm. and indigenous notions of being stewards of nature. Mm-hmm. Can you talk to how this, can you just talk to this conflict and, and maybe how it relates to our understanding of wildness? Uh, also, just maybe how you experienced it through the, the making of this film? Yeah, it's, it's, it's a very interesting uh, conundrum, right? Because when you think of the United States anyways, if we're talking about this domestically, we were founded as a Christian nation with the exception of the Native Americans that were here. If you look at those people that landed here first and began settling, it was those people that believed in the biblical teachings of which Genesis includes the passage that God made mankind in his image, not her image, his image, and said, be fruitful and multiply and go have dominion of over all of the animals of the earth, all the birds of the sky, the fish of the sea, and everything that creepeth upon the earth. And humans have done that. And that's a, a hugely different paradigm than people like Yurok that we worked with closely, whose creation story is not about a person, man or woman, that creates another person in their image. They talk about a group of spirit people that began creating the earth and they made a pact with that spirit people that they would take care of the earth, including salmon. And that that salmon would then always be there for them. But if there were no salmon, there were no reason for them as a people. That's a totally different reason and rationale kind of, uh, at your core psyche of what you're supposed to do and how you're supposed to operate. And that's what's pervaded their traditions for all the years. And for the last, you know, 2000 plus years, we've had a different story. And when you look at what humanity is doing, you know, we are fulfilling that story that we were given so long ago. And I think that we have to kind of reconsider that because the planet has changed significantly in the 2000 years since a proclamation like that was given. And there's more people here. And we've certainly dominated the the environment in such a way that now we're having, you know, huge consequences, again, not just for us in our own making, but for all the other animals, beings that had no say in it, that we are supposed to be uh, stewarding, if you believe that. 
And I really think that we have to take our Western ideals and reconsider them. Because if we don't, that same thing that was our creation story will be our own demise. Well, is there anything about, I mean, you're speaking to something really powerful, which is in essence, the role of story, myth, narrative in affecting our worldview and consequently affecting how we interact with the natural world. Has this film or did this film change the way you look at the medium of filmmaking as a form of activism? Uh, like were, were there any, were there any moments throughout this film that were of, uh, that were particularly in, impactful for you personally? Yeah, hugely. You know, at, at the outset, we kind of tried to pull a couple reference films. My uh, partner, business partner, Colin Kreiner, who was the editor and co-writer of the film, and Laura Wagner, who was the producer, the three of us really said, you know, what other films are invigorating our interest in this subject matter? And we looked to films like Blackfish about captivity of orcas, and we looked to films like The Cove about, uh, you know, the slaughter of, of dolphins in in Japan. And we looked at other films that we thought made really strong points. And that's where we kind of wanted to head. But we were like, I wonder if we're going to get there because people just don't have the same appreciation and, and connection with fish as they might with marine mammals. So we embarked kind of from the outset on trying to tell a story as powerful as that. And then we began to realize, whoa, wait a minute. You know, there is a connection between certain people and fish much stronger or as strong as this connection with marine mammals. You know, the farther you get from the mammalian experience, I think the harder it is to, to appreciate something. But salmon, salmon are different that way and that we've created a narrative around them and their resilience and their return and their seasonality. And uh, I think it's, it's kind of, again, the testament to how strong stories are we don't have the same relationship with a flounder we haven't created a, a creation myth with a flounder because the, right. the flounder never kind of came back into our terrestrial ecosystem that we interacted with and in the case of salmon they look like these outsized fish in these little tiny creeks uh and, and we could see that and that's what informed us so as we began to realize this appreciation we saw people express it very differently so there are there are some who share a, a different worldview than us that, that believe that they are, they are helping to fix this problem by, as we mentioned, kind of like raising and releasing salmon. So we watched two very committed individuals on the Elwha River in Washington use a, a long pole with a hook at the end and yank fish off of their spawning beds only to rip out their eggs and squeeze out their sperm, which is also called milk, and then bring those back into a confined, you know, sterile environment, if you will, and raise them. And that's what hatcheries do. And we knew that, but then we heard them say, you know, this is what we do to give back. And in fact, they went so far as to say, when we miss a fish and we, we reach for them with a gaff and we miss it and then don't kill the fish and pull out their gametes, they feel like they failed the fish. And we realized they are just as committed as we are helping, hoping other people will be, but they're committed to a different paradigm. And I think that's what changed me because again, I had come up under that same paradigm through wildlife fisheries biology. And they taught you, this is how we manage fish. We just, we, we make them in basically fish factories that we call hatcheries. 
And I began to realize the scale and the scope of this and how much money and effort is devoted to the propagation of fish rather than the protection of the environment. And I began to realize, whoa, there is something hugely different going on here because we don't raise and release deer. We don't stock elk. You know, we don't have hatcheries for ducks and geese. We tried in the 1900s, failed miserably. And we instead set aside refuges to allow nature to do its work. But we haven't done that with fish. And so I began to realize, you know, in myself, this, this paradigm I had come up under and so many other people had come up under was really wrong. And when you dug deeper and recognized that this kind of loss in faith in nature was what was driving people to kind of continue this thing that has been now scientifically proven to be uh, negatively impacting wild fish, that you have to kind of say, well, why do they still do it? And I think it all comes back to story. Well, can I ask you how, I know you've been on the on tour with the film for a while now, and what's the general response to the film been like? And how's it been received? And how are people responding to this this paradigm and the hope to, to shift uh, the way we're, we're viewing our, our story and our relationship around salmon? Uh, the response has been, you know, in one word, bananas. <laughs> <laughs> it, I, I did not, I thought that we had a compelling story that was going to definitely move some people, but the response has been so overwhelming. And, and I don't think any of us saw that coming. And, and I don't say that because we didn't think we had the craft or the tone or the visuals, but I think it just landed at a time when people are really attuned to this right now, in addition to the strength of the film. But, you know, one of the things I remember most is, Somebody said, what's what's the best screening you've had? And, and it's hard because there's been so many amazing screenings. But one that impacted me the most was in New York City. So we premiered at Tribeca, and then we did a show the night afterwards at the Soho uh, location of the Patagonia store in New York City. And there were like 400 people there. And I thought, this is amazing that 400 people in New York City, which is really far from this issue, you know, both like – geographically, as well as you might think philosophically. And that was one of the most engaged audiences we had. People were aghast. And they were like, how is this possible this is happening? And then I saw that reverberated in places like we were just in the Orcas Island Film Festival this past weekend. And here's a place that's featured in the film. They're right in the thick of this issue. And I had a guy stand up and say, I am, you know, 65 years old. I'm ecologically aware, for lack of a better term. And he said, how did I not know this was happening? How is it possible that the average Joe doesn't know this? And I came back to saying, again, it's the stories. Because we created this, this, this narrative that was so powerful that it has now been you know, repeated by state and federal agencies that are tasked with taxpayer monies that instead of meeting the, the root of the decline of fish in this case, which is habitat degradation, they meet the symptoms of the issue, which is lack of fish rather than the root, which is habitat degradation, which is the disease. Really. And so when we began to see that, we just, it just made much, much more sense that people might, as they learned it, be aghast, and they have been. 
because they were like, I can't believe how much money and time and effort is being spent making fish for people rather than protecting fish. And I mean, really, even when you see that fish and wildlife are protected by an agency, fish and wildlife, whose main job is to give people something to catch and something to hunt, you realize there's something at odds there because fish and wildlife should be protecting the fish and wildlife. Instead, in this case, they're manufacturing them. So I think people, as they learn more about it and see uh, the stark contrast of what they thought was happening and what is happening, then they're engaged. And that's what's making it resonate outside of just the typical kind of angling community, shall we say. Well, I do think people are, are hungry for this kind of story and for bringing awareness to these types of issues. So I just have to thank you for your work. I really do think you are trailblazing a, a type of storytelling that is, go is going to be emerging in much more uh, prominence or prevalence over, over the next many years. And, and I mean, we believe that film is an incredibly powerful medium. So thank you for, for doing what you've done and, and for pushing this work forward and for helping to change the narrative around uh, the natural world and, and these creatures that we need to just grow closer to. So I, I think in, in closing, um, I know the, the film is supposed to be out at some point. Is it going on Netflix or Amazon? Where can people watch it? Yeah, at the, at the end of this month, it will launch on Amazon Prime, uh, iTunes, and YouTube. And it's an interesting point in part because Patagonia just wants people to see it. And they were like, how do we give it away? And Amazon, of course, is a, is a subscription base. iTunes is a, a transactional where you buy it. And YouTube is free. And so they wanted to have it at all these places where people are as viewers. So if you have a subscription or you're used to buying something on iTunes or you're watching something on YouTube, you can, you can have the opportunity to view it. But the most important thing that we can do is tell people because there's so many films that are coming out and there's so many other things that take our attention. Even the news cycle these days, it's hard you know, to find an opportunity. But I encourage people to certainly watch this film and engage with other films that are telling stories that, that are provocative enough to make you want to get engaged. And there's, there's I think now we have over 250,000 signatures, which at the end of the film, you'll see a text to number to participate in people demanding that we watch out for the future of wild fish. And so, you know, please from me and from all those people that are, are, are really dedicated to this issue, take a watch and start a conversation and, and reach out into your home waters, touch their water and say, how can I help? Find an organization that works on river restoration in your, right in your backyard and do something because that's where we have the opportunity to take this two-dimensional image and make three-dimensional change. Well, thank you so much, Josh, for your time. Really appreciate it and all the best in your future endeavors. Thank you so much. All right, take care. All right, bye-bye. I live on honey that I find in the trees Build my bed of grass and fall I can feel my heart close to the ground Touch the earth and pray that we don't drown 
Crossing the river, Jordan. 